A quick warning that this episode contains strong language. Hi, I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. This isn't just terrible thanks for asking. This is terrible thanks for asking like you've never heard us before. I'm just getting really into... I've, I was trying to do a lot of different TV intros that Han said were possibly copyright infringement. So I'll just say this. It's a live show, which is pretty exciting for us because it's our first live show. And we got to do it at the Now Hear This Festival at the Javits Center in New York City. And not just at the Javits Center in New York City, but at the Javits Center in New York City while RuPaul's DragCon was also happening. So there was a very cool festival happening, and then also a bunch of nerds in the basement doing podcast stuff. (laughs) I walked in, and immediately someone was like, you belong in the basement. You are a basement person. Do not try to walk into DragCon looking like whatever you're wearing. So for our very first live show, we thought, what could we do to make it super special? And Hans was like, audience participation. And I was like, Hans, have you ever been in public? People hate that, okay? People go to a show specifically to sit and not participate. But, of course, I um, I did respect his wishes, so we did a lot of audience participation. I'm talking Macarena, the chicken dance, thumbs up, seven up. Is that only a game in the Midwest? We'll find out. Um, but we also invited psychotherapist Esther Perel to come and answer some listener questions for us. If you don't know who Esther Perel is, how... Is that possible? Because Esther Perel is the patron saint of relationships, who's also Belgian. Uh, I mean, her TED Talks are everywhere. They have 18 million views. She wrote an incredible book called Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. And her second book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, is out now. Esther also is the host of this incredible podcast called Where Should We Begin?, which is like listening in on couples therapy. And it's like that because that's what it is. Esther invites different couples into her office. They get mic'd up. And as a listener, you get to hear what regular couples are going through. And you also get the brilliance of Esther's insight. She is like nobody else. So we head now to the basement of the Javits Center. Above us are beautiful drag queens. But we are in a dark room on a beautiful Saturday, and we welcome to the stage the incomparable Esther Perel. So um, your name is Esther Perel, which is important for people to know because I'm from the Midwest, and guess what we say? Esther Perel. Esther Perel. Okay, and that's what I said earlier. And Hans was like, listen to it. Try train your stupid Minnesota mouth to say words correctly. And so I really spent a lot of time on that. In front of a mirror? In front of a mirror, in front of Hans, in front of this sweet little girl from Idaho who I sat next to on the plane. Uh, She was real nice. She was real cute. Anyways, I'm bringing you here for a reason. Tell me. Because you are an expert. You are a licensed psychotherapist. I'm barely even like a licensed driver. I am, but... So they can't come after you, but they can come after me. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually the difference. Yeah, I'm also like a a legal enthusiast. I've watched a lot of Law & Order. But um, we are bringing you here today because we talk a lot about relationships, and that's your thing. And we get a lot of questions about relationships. So 
what makes somebody like you, somebody who's brilliant and speaks nine languages, decide to devote their life to this kind of work, to solving other people's relationship problems? Hmm. I think that the quality of your relationships determines the quality of your life. It's pretty much it, no matter what else. Everything you described there. I mean, it's just a whole system of, of relationships, the story of connection, disconnection, and repair. That cycle. And the way you end it also with the willingness to understand that this happens again and again and again. So I think relationships are fascinating. I think couples, because that's the system of relationships that I'm the most interested in, are probably the best theater in town. <laughs> um, couples is the most difficult kind of, cup of therapy and often the most useless. And when, it, when it's useful and when you see that relationship transform, it is magical. Don't take credit for it, but it's magical to watch and to be a, to be a participant and a witness to it. And I like the puzzle. I like the notion that what you see isn't just what it is. And then the sleuth work underneath to figure out what are the forces that, that shape this dynamic, what's going on, what are the patterns, what is the rhythm. It's a music. It's a, you know, and how not to listen for content, how to watch the form, what one person does to the other that makes the other react in this way that then pushes the first one to do the exact opposite of what they really wanted, actually. And that kind of thing. You know, it's like playing pool. If you want a ball to kick the hole, you need to know which is the one you need to kick, and it's never the one that should go inside the hole. I'm so bad at pool. Me too, but yeah. I love the image of it, yeah. the strategy of it. So that's, that's working with relationships. It's the essence. Okay, so we actually have three listener stories. People had reached out to us, um, you know, not knowing that we were doing this interview with you at first, but um, people who had just reached out and wanted to share a story of a relationship. And I thought this calls for an expert. And one of the things that I loved from your wonderful podcast is the line, when you pick a partner, you pick a story, and often you will be recruited for a play you didn't audition for. So we're actually going to hear from some of these listeners, people who have found themselves in a play that they didn't audition for and then we're hoping that you will have some insight. So the first person we're going to hear from is Samantha. So Samantha was a high school freshman and a new boy came to school and they became friends immediately. They had all these classes together. They started spending all their time with one another. And then Samantha realized this, I don't just like this guy as a friend. I have a mega crush on him. And she was trying to downplay it, but it didn't, you know, go away. And they went to the same college. And then she realized, I don't just have a mega crush on this guy. I'm in love with him. And because, you know, they're spending all that time together, she's pretty confident. Like, look, he's probably going to feel the same way. So she tells him and he was like, I don't want to ruin this friendship. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, me neither. Totally. And she, uh, you know, tried out once more, like, okay, but I am in love with you. And he's like, no. No. So she just bottled that up and shoved that down inside of her. 
And some time passed and eventually he started to act more boyfriendy. You're like, has this ever happened to someone? Like you have like this friend, but he like puts together your Ikea furniture and you're like, what is this? He would like hold her hand when they walked around campus. And sometimes they kissed on the lips and she was so excited and she was like, oh, this is happening. Like everything in my life, everything I've waited for is coming together. And it's been, you know, all she had to do was just wait seven years. That's all she had to do. Um, but then he started dating a girl from our school, from the college that we went to. And he told me he was going on a date with this girl. And at first I kind of panicked, but then I thought, it's okay. You know, he'll go on a date with this girl and he'll realize that I'm the one he loves. Um, but then he kept dating her and he wanted me to meet her. And I knew in that moment that I had to cut ties with him. I had to sever the relationship and try to go on on my own. So I, I took the coward's way out and I sent him an email because I knew that if I tried to have a conversation with him, like in person, I didn't think I was going to be able to get through it. And I I said, I can't be a part of this. I'm still in love with you. I can't watch you be with this other girl. I can't be okay with it. I don't think we should be a part of each other's lives anymore because I can't just be friends with you. And he never replied to that email and we never spoke again. And that was 10 years ago. After that, I was devastated. I was crushed, and I didn't have anything left when it was over. I hardly had any friends because I spent all of my time with him. And I kind of put things back together, and I, you know, met the man who's now my husband, and I've got two kids. I love them more than anything in the world, and I wouldn't change the way that things worked out at all. Um, but the problem is that. I still think of that relationship. I still think of him all the time. Maybe not every day, but every other day. I have dreams about him maybe once a week. And it's not, I'm not thinking about him or dreaming about him in a way that I still want him or that I'm still in love with him because I'm not. Like I, I love my husband and my kids so much and it's like my subconscious can't let go of that hurt. And I've talked about it with my husband because I don't want to hide anything from him. And he understands this and he hurts for me. And so I guess the question that I have is that I don't know how to make that hurt go away. I don't know how to make that wound close and heal. I need closure with that relationship and some kind of resolution that I never got at the time. It still haunts me. I don't know how to make that go away. I don't know how to make that wound heal. The number of audible groans. 
salute you, fellow females who have done this. <laughs> um, what do we do with that, with the unresolved relationships that never were? So I think in two directions, you know. Um, option one is, this is what I was imagining as she was talking. Option one, I imagined that I would do a psychodrama in which someone, could be me or could be someone, would fictitiously play the guy who says goodbye, who says, I'm sorry, I acted like a jerk, I felt guilty, I, or may even say I wrote you back but you never got it, you never know what happened, I'm willing to, you know. But a staged experience where she gets to live the thing she never got, which is the answer. Option two is that somewhere in her, the wound is that he never closed it. And that in a way, she never said goodbye to him. Why wait for him to do it? And that she could go back. Um, and I would have her write a different letter, in which, handwritten, by the way, in which she would write to him um, what he has left her with for all these years, what that experience has been like for her, and how she has decided that he's been with her long enough that she has decided that for some reason she has privileged this experience, that hurt, that scorn, that jiltedness, over a lot of other things, and that he has gotten way too much credit, and that she's decided to bring, you know, that from now on, other relationships will get more of that attention. And if she wants, it can be not a conversation or a letter even to him. It can be a, a letter to what she calls her subconscious. <laughs> That's inside voices, you know. There are voices inside of us and they have conversations with each other. So it's a conversation between the voice of today that would like to free herself from this nagging, constant, bringing back that she's not really worth it, that the, the person that she really cared for was able to dump her like that, that, you know, in a way she was ghosted, right? That what that kind of ghosting does to, it and to us and how gutting it is. But on the other end, it's also a way of saying that the ghosting is somehow more significant in the story of my life than all these other love experiences that I have, to which she gives a little bit of lip service to. I love my kids, I love my husband, but <laughs> this is where I really spend the essence of my emotional life, and that needs to be rebalanced. It's a choice that you make at some point in which you say, I'm going to play a different song. And you, it's an act. It's not that you believe it in the moment you do it, but it's a ritual. A ritual in which she says goodbye to a song inside of her that needs to now be dimmed. What is the difference between wanting to change the song and actually changing the song? I don't always want to brush my teeth, <laughs> but I brush my teeth. A ritual does not ask you if you want to. A ritual is an act that is repetitious and its meaning doesn't come from your motivation, its meaning comes from the repetition. 
that religion understood that a long time ago. You know, the same way that we have certain rituals for birth and certain rituals for death, and this is a death, and she needs to do that mourning, and she needs to close the casket of herself, the part of herself that sits in there. And you do the ritual first, and if the ritual is powerful, it will help you with the motivation. It comes from the other direction. So why handwriting versus email? Because the Indian people in India understood, the Hindus actually, to be more accurate, understood that your emotions come through your hand, come through your fingers. And there is something about this kind of writing that there is nothing... First of all, there's no handwriting in typed letters. There is nothing of you that can come out there. And it is also rather, um, you don't feel anything. It's about sensing. It's not just about feeling. When you write with your hand, in the pen lies all the emotions, the way you hold it, the way you tighten it, the way you, 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 you push on it. And I also think that it's not just that you write by hand, but you throw away the first version. The first version is just a purge. The second version is the one that you're going to do something with. And now I can tell her, I want you to take that letter and you're going to go put it in a place that represents something in your relationship with that guy, a place that is meaningful and that you're going to go see for the last time. So now I'm staging the ritual with her. You're going to go drop that letter. You, can even, you may stand there. You're going to read that letter out loud, that park where you used to go, that bench where you used to sit, whatever, the, the field that you used to hang out in. And then you will leave it there, and you will find a little way to create an altar for it. And you're going to say goodbye, not to the guy. You're going to say goodbye to the part of you that decided that the way he treated you had a relevance and, an, and a real estate in your life that is no longer warranted. It's a, it's a liberation of something that sits there. And the most important thing about things that sit inside of you is to actually take them out. It's the externalizing the problem. It's to, to separate yourself from the problem. You are not a problem. You have something that weighs on you. We are going to go through a ritual that's going to help, that give you the power to actually take it out. There's not one answer to this thing, but this one is, a, is a, it's effective. It's time for a quick break so you can get some snacks, um, or I'm going to because I'm pretty sure you all have to hear, if you listen carefully to TTFA, you'll hear my stomach always making these weird hunger sounds like that aren't cool. It sounds like really desperate little lizard lives inside of me. <laughs> anyway, it's time to get some snacks. We'll be back with more advice from Esther Perel. All of the stories that you're hearing in this episode came from you. Not you personally, if you're like, did I take Ambien and just submit a bunch of questions for Esther Perel using different voices? As far as I know, you didn't. But every one of these questions came from our listeners, which is awesome. You can submit yours by going to our website, which is ttfa.org. While you're at the website, why not make a donation? Because then you'll also be invited into our terrible club. 
where I will I will basically just be lurking, asking you very personal questions, forcing you to give me life advice. There's very little in it for you, but I find the club very rewarding. $5 a month or more gets you into the club. You can find me in the club. And anyone else get that 50 cent reference? You can find me in the club, the terrible club. It's on Facebook. We have no bub. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back to our live show with Esther Perel on stage at the Now Hear This Festival in New York City. Here is me talking to... Here's me. Here's, here's, here's me. So the next person you're going to imaginarily talk to is Amanda. Okay, so Amanda meets Michael in high school physics, the year's 2007, so they're youngins. They were lab partners, and then they went to the movies, and then they were talking, and then they were dating all summer, but they had graduated, and they are like, let's break up, we're going to different colleges, but then he does this whole, like, John Cusack say anything moment, and like he's... what moment? Oh, we're so different. Um, <laughs> we have these moments. It's like this movie, John Cusack wants the girl back, he goes to her house, he holds up a, a tape deck, boombox, do we still say that? And like plays a romantic song. Which song? It's romantic. Outside of her window. In your eyes. The light, the heat. And then she like hears it and is like, obviously I will get back together with this guy standing on my lawn playing a romantic song. So basically Michael does this to Amanda. He just shows up, huge grand gesture. Okay. And um, she gets back together with him and then he breaks up with her again. And then he asks for her back again. And then he breaks up with her again. Then he asks for her back again. And they do this five times in 10 years, which you would never do because you are a smart, confident woman, but I have for sure done. And it's the same thing. Like he breaks up with her, begs for her back. And then she keeps saying yes, because your twenties are weird. And also like, he makes me laugh. Like there's no funny people in the world. No judgment, Amanda. I've done this. I'm, um, so yeah, they, they keep breaking up, getting back together. Then they get back together. They're together long enough to get engaged, to move to a new city for her career. And this whole time she's like, you know what? Like he's got like some bad qualities, but like deep down inside, I can see that he's a good person. This is like, and you know, it's a little strained, um, but things are good. They're engaged. They're about to get married in three months. And one morning she wakes up and she's getting ready to go to work. And she's like, look, dude, I know you're not super happy. We'll talk about this after work. And he makes her coffee and gives her a thermos. And she goes to work. And when she comes back, he's gone. Jesus. <laughs> she legit has not heard this either. This is... I pull onto the driveway. I walk into our rental house. And it is half empty. His car isn't there. So I call him and he says in an extremely flat tone, I can't marry you. And I left. And I'm never coming back. We talked for about maybe 20 minutes or so. He wouldn't tell me where he was or where he was going, just that he had packed up his stuff as soon as I left for work and had already been in the car for six hours at that point, proceeded to give me a list of all the things that were wrong with me. <laughs> sort of at the beginning of the conversation, I was pleading, 
for the opportunity to talk in person, he stuck to his guns and said no. I kind of pleaded, hey, like, look, we can cancel the wedding. We can postpone it, whatever. It doesn't mean that the relationship has to end. And, and what he said was, I already have a cloud over my head from all of our past breakups. I don't want to live with an even bigger cloud from having postponed the wedding. And, you know, followed that gem up with, um, if I still have doubts about you after 10 years, then they're never going to go away. I think that over the last few years, I had noticed that he really, most of the time, wasn't really being the best version of himself. And I got feedback from his family, his friends, that he just seemed off and not like the person they had known. He was not the funny, confident, you know, boisterous and self-aware person that I, I thought he was deep down. He seemed kind of mean and judgmental and entitled in ways that I had seen glimpses of as we'd grown up, ways that really reminded me a lot of his own parents' relationship and how his dad sometimes acts, but I just made a lot of excuses. I don't know. It's frustrating to think to myself and wonder that he might meet someone who helps him figure this out and who does help him live on the light side as his best self um, day in, day out. It's really easy to, to blame him for his immaturity and his cowardice, but what is it say about me and and what kind of accountability should I take for being in a, in a relationship with like this and with the person like him? Ooh. So... You only live your 20s once. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I think that... Uh, um, you see, it's very different to ask a question of self-blame versus to ask a question of self-responsibility. Of course she should ask herself. It is a normal question. Why did I keep going back? And the interesting thing is she only thought of his parents. <laughs> I would introduce hers too. You know, that's the, the, there is some, but there is, you know, youth, there is immaturity, there is learning about this, and I... Um, and, and hopefully we don't repeat this. It becomes an issue if you do this again, again and again. But as it stands, I, I would want her to explore it. I would want her to understand what was the draw. I would want to understand if it has to do with, how, with issues of her own self-worth. I would want to understand if he was just really, really good at always promising. I would want to understand if, you know, if she has experience from one source or another about taking on a project, and the project is fixing the guy, 
you know, and making him finally become the man who then will be able to be the boyfriend with her that she's looking for. All of these subtext stories that we have. But I would really hope that she doesn't go to the blame, as in what's fucked up with me that I allowed for this. To, because when you're in shame, you can't think. When you're in shame, you can't take responsibility. It's actually the opposite. And responsibility, yes, there's a lot to learn here for you. This is an, an, a formative experience of love, of connecting to somebody, of what you ask for, of what you allow other people to do to you, of where you put your limits, where you put your boundaries. In the end, the one thing I would want to tell this woman is, he did you a favor. Thank him. I mean, that's the first thing. Thank him, you know, because you couldn't do it. And he, as often is the case for people who have that ambivalence, did it at the last minute, which is not uncommon. There's a lot of stories of people who the day before, the morning of, the, when, when it really dawns on it, and, what, and for the first time, he actually was really honest. Maybe not the first time, but he really said it. I can't do it. I, and he has been ambivalent all along. I can't do it because I don't want the cloud. And the cloud is... is, is, is the experiences and the breakups that we've had, but it's also something doesn't sit well here for me. And, you know, every time he said something doesn't sit here well for me, she says, I'll fix it. <laughs> or I'll, we'll get through it. Or we will find a way. She didn't really listen, and neither did he really listen to this thing that was constantly coming in between. So in the end, him finally fleeing and only being able to do it through fleeing is not an uncommon thing, and I think he should do his work about that at some point. You know, my view about people and therapy and relationships, not everybody needs to go to therapy. That's really not the point. But it is so that I find myself saying quite frequently, you know, everybody has some relationship things they have to work out. The only question is with whom are they going to do it? With which one of the partners are they going to work out their relationship challenges? but they're going to have to do it at some point, even if it's in their 60s. So this guy is the one with whom you began to work out quite a few things about you in relationship. What you ask for, what you don't ask for, what, where you don't put your limits, where, where you allow yourself to, to be with someone who isn't sure about you, which is a form of torture. It's one thing to be with someone who doesn't want you, but it's another thing to be with someone who isn't sure how much they want you. <laughs> it's a trickle effect, you know, a little bit. And then this day, yes, and then this day, not so sure. It's a real torture to be with someone who's ambivalent. And for the first time, he finally was clear. Thank him. But that takes a while to get to, to really understand that. And... And then the next piece is, how do you not live with this as the script for your future relationships? That now you're going to be hunting for certainty. You're going to want to make for sure. And, and will you accept when someone is certain? Or do you only find yourself drawn to the ones that are not? <laughs> That's the, you know, some of us, we don't like the ones who love us. It's easy and simple. We don't, it came too easy. We don't trust it. We think they must be missing something. And if they really saw us for who we are, they would love us that easily. Yeah, we um, want to like win someone over to like prove. Or if I don't like certain parts of myself and you love me as is, then either you're blind or you're stupid. What's wrong with you that you don't see what, what's fucked up with me, you know? And... 
I think she should be hurt. I think, I mean, she's normal. I would say to her, oh, this is a terrible experience. But there's so much lessons here. And we're going to unpack this. And we're going to see what, what, what you take from here. And including the fact that you can never say, I didn't try. You tried. But a relationship doesn't just depend on you alone. You can try all kinds of things. If the other person doesn't want to, you can't make them. And this is a lesson in humility. You may have powers, you may have been a real responsible one in your family, you may have taken care of everybody, but there are certain things you can't create. You can't force someone to love you. You can force someone to be there, but then you get the shell of a person. And in a way, he told you he didn't want to be the shell of a person. And he will find that other woman, but you may find that other guy if you leave that possibility open. Yes. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> like, pretty much word for word. <laughs> Absolutely. And Which, if you ask me the same question an hour later, I would probably give you a completely yeah. different response. <laughs> just so you understand, this is just the thought of the moment. This is not like... <laughs> I was just going to tell her, look, you should only be with someone who wakes up every day and is like, hell yeah. Like, look at this person. I'm in love with this person. That's how I feel like that's the kind of love that everybody deserves, not like an arm wrestling contest. Yes, but before you say <laughs> that, that's what you deserve, you want to understand, is this person capable of receiving that? Or is there something in the way that first needs to be removed? That's why I would ask her about her experiences at home. Where did you learn to love and with whom? What were the messages that you received? When you did this thing, who did you see anybody else do this? And what was that like? Or did somebody do this with you? Did you already experience this kind of story, even if not a boyfriend, once before? Whose love have you tried to win before in your life? Is this the first time you're working so hard at making someone love you? Or have you done this? Do you have experience with this? Who was it? This is often not the first time, but because it's a boyfriend, it looks like it's a different story. And I, you don't presume that there is the mother, the father, the whoever else took care of you, but you do want to go check there. These are scripts we've learned. Yeah. Man, I just hope I'm not fucking up all my kids. Okay, um, that's another topic for later. Me and you. Um, okay. <laughs> We have one more person. Okay. Her name is Val. All women. All women. I know. I just read this. I was like, come on, dudes. Um, is mostly women write to you? I mean, if, no. I get, a, I get a lot of dude emails um, or f emails from men. I don't know. That sounds also weird. I don't know. M male listeners also write to us with stories. <laughs> and um, can, I can I ask you something? Yeah. My experience is that if a woman writes to me, it's very personal, but she probably already told it to somebody else. Most often when I get a letter from a man, I know he's hearing himself say it for the first time, even to himself. Yeah, there's a... Yeah? Hans does a lot of the first conversations with people, and you can tell who's repeated it to 100 friends and who's saying it for the first time for sure. Okay, so this is Val. It's another young love one. I th all these people are probably from the Midwest. That's what we do. Like, after 25, people are like, 
Sorry. I think this is, this is universal and it's a developmental story. I really don't think it's a regional. Uh, regional. These two stories yeah. you've told me could happen anywhere on the okay. planet. Anywhere on the planet. They are, they are stories of young love and the disillusionments thereof and then and all of what follows. All right. Well, we're not special. <laughs> so my at least my dad told me that when I was growing up, so that was important. Okay. So in a nice way, but sort of. Okay. So Val... She met Andrew. They were 18. They met when they were 18, but they didn't date for seven years. And then when they were dating, I mean, they were just like straight up in love right away. Then they got married. They had a child right away. And Andrew started to show some problems with alcohol. Like he had gotten a DUI in college. Um, and when she was pregnant with their second baby, uh, Valid started to think that he was drinking too much again. So she left him. Well, he worked that out, and they ended up reconciling. They ended up having three kids. Life was good. Um, They'd been through a lot, highs and lows, but their marriage was, you know, waves, and Val would find him, like, drinking secretly, which was confusing because it wasn't as if she'd told him, you know, he could never drink again. And she'd notice he was smoking a lot more, and she would find huge empty bottles of vodka in the car. Um, and her family actually wasn't big drinkers, so she just thought that was normal. That's just how people drink. Um, and she thought that, look, if I love him enough and I show him I love him and I'm caring about it and I play up his good traits, you know, where this is going. So June 2016, they rent a cottage on Lake Michigan for vacation uh, with his family. And they'd been there one day and he went out fishing in his kayak and the kids had just taken a nap. And Val's brother-in-law came in uh, yelling and saying no one was in Andrew's boat. And they rushed to the lake and they called 911. And I mean, she just assumed he'd be fine. He was somewhere, but he wasn't. Um, It took them an hour to get him out of the water and back to the beach and to the hospital. And he had died. So they spent a couple days in Michigan. Uh, Their family just collected there. And after a while, She left, she went back home and started to get his memorial ready, all that paperwork, all that stuff. And one night she came back from a visit with some more paperwork. And I was talking to my mom and I I asked her, I was like, do you think that Andrew was drunk when he died? Because it doesn't make any sense to me that he would have drowned being who he was, you know, a strong swimmer, a smart person. And she said, did you read the autopsy? For me, the moment I read that autopsy, Andrew was drunk the day he died, and he was an alcoholic, which seemed to explain to me every odd thing that we had ever had in our relationship, all the quarrels, all the, you know, weird discoveries that I made, his prickliness about... Um, me talking about alcohol, um, his like angry outbursts when he hadn't had anything to drink. Um, it explained how many times I thought he'd been drunk and asked him when he was driving the car and he said, no, 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 I'm just sleepy. But I don't know when he drank. I don't know how much he drank. I don't know how many times he had endangered the kids and I and himself. Here I thought we'd had this super open, honest relationship, and yet here was this enormous lie. So in some ways, 
I want closure, you know? I want to know that our relationship was good and beautiful and honest. I, I, I do want to know why my love and the love of my children didn't have the power to heal him and to make him better. You know, I feel like being a Christian, that's what I'm told, that love has the power to heal and change things. And that's what I've believed my whole life, that love could physically change something that was broken. And I couldn't. When you were reading that she found a bottle in the car, I was about to interrupt you and just to say, and that's the five others she didn't find. It's always worse than what you think it is in that scenario, unfortunately. Um, because the person who drinks has developed a whole life about hiding, about hiding it from themselves, about hiding it from the whole world. This is part of what the disease of alcoholism is and does. So there are two parts. There is the, yes, you have to reckon with the fact that this, this disease um, lies. It's at its core. It lies. It lies about, not about if you love the person or not. It's not about, it lies about, um, about the drinking, but the drinking becomes the mediation of the whole, you know, you mediate your whole life with it. And then the second thing is this notion that love heals. For all these big truths that are true, there is always, but not always, but with a limit. I mean, you can't make these things absolute. If somebody wants to kill themselves, you will stop them 10 times and they'll succeed the next one. You cannot. And this is one of the most important realizations in love, is that there is a piece of the other that you cannot force. And that leaves you very alone. That leaves them very alone, because some people are loved and loved and loved, and yet they still feel depressed beyond, and they will one day kill themselves. And, and they wonder, what's wrong with me that none of that love is sufficient to make me feel good about my life or myself? So mental health is mental health and mental illness is a is a true is a true condition. Yes, you loved him, and maybe you actually expanded his life a long time. You don't know. But your love wasn't gonna be enough to make him stop drinking. No, that is not the way this works. Alcoholism has a way of being more powerful than whatever feelings you can bestow on him. And the real, real, real tragic denouement here that is actually a, a, a semi-blessing is that it happened to him when he was alone. Um, that it wasn't in the car with the kids. It's a, that's just that, you know, I have to say this to you. The blessing is that he didn't take everybody else with him. Now, that takes a while to swallow, but it is, the, it is, it is <laughs> truth. Um, the next thing is, Go to Alanon, read, talk to other people, and learn about this illness. Yes, you're right. You will begin to understand that when he said this, when he did that, when he pretended this, that 90% of the time, 
it was the alcohol that was behind all of this. And now you can begin to realize that when you have a relationship with someone who drinks, you have a relationship with alcoholism at some point more than with a person. This is what is really creepy about this thing. It, it, the person has surrendered to the alcoholism. They can't fight it, which is why the whole first step is about surrendering your will to try to control it, because it now controls you. And you have a relationship with an alcoholic, and that means you have a relationship with the alcoholism. And he was very good. He managed to hide it and to continue to be a functional alcoholic for a long time. How much suffering must he have experienced to be able to do that? Many 18-year-olds drink a lot and too much, and a few continue, and the others manage to curb it. And those who continue are the vulnerable ones. They actually, you know, they, they're a little more fragile. And that fragility probably was what made him endearing as well and made him a wonderful person and a great dad to his kids and, and a good friend and whatever. All of these other things plus this. How do you balance the grief of losing your husband with the realization of this kind of... You don't of... balance anything. You have a series of contradictory emotions that are flooding you all at once. One minute is, fuck you. The next minute is, how could you do this to me? The next minute is, I miss you. The next minute is, I wish you had told me. The next minute is, I could have helped you more. The next minute is, there was nothing I could do for you. The next minute is, you lie to everybody. It's just one thing after another. There is no balance in those moments. It's chaotic. You know, mourning and death and this thing, it's chaotic. It's the, your whole, and you don't seek balance. You seek the permission to experience pain in its raw, unedited, unvarnished version. It sucks. And this is what it is. And you're going to do this for a while. And as long as you know that that back and forth contradictory emotions are completely normal, and that you shouldn't be feeling this or shouldn't be feeling the opposite, then you'll actually will, you'll see it. at some point it will lessen intensity. At some point you'll, you'll understand the man had an illness and, and unfortunately it took him. And you, you will accept the fatality of this and you will tell this to your children and you will tell your children your father was a wonderful man with an illness. It's both and. You know, and your father, the last thing he wanted was to not be there for you. But unfortunately, he didn't know how to be there for himself. And they will not understand this. They will just hear it. And then as they grow older, it will become more meaningful and it will make sense to them. You know, there's all these explanations you get when you're a child and you just remember the way they were told to you. And then as you grow, you, each year you remember, you understand more what it actually is saying to you. And one day, you will also think, you know, I have another life to live. And I continue. And you probably will not be with another alcoholic. You will find some other problem, but not that one. <laughs> We're going to end there. You're allowed to have all the feelings all the time. It's going to suck. Don't fall in love with and another don't alcoholic. don't think that life is balanced. This whole, this is a very modern idea. We have to balance work and life and work and all these balances. There is no balance. 
the balance is the ability to actually let all of these things you know, erupt inside of us and then gradually come back down. It's very important because people find it disturbing to have this series of feelings back and forth that, that, that say the opposite to each other. It is so normal. Everyone in this room is so normal. That's Esther Perel. Thank you. That was so good. This has been Terrible Thanks for Asking, live from the Now Hear This Festival at the Javits Center in lovely New York City. So a huge thank you for all of you who came out to see us. That was so cool of you. Everyone who didn't make it, what were you doing? That was so important that you couldn't drop everything, come to New York City, and sit in a basement with me. Gonna hold that grudge. I'm Norm McNerney, host and grudge holder. Hans Buto is our senior producer. He goes to bed every night with a clear conscience. Our interns are Jacob Maldonado Medina, Emily Allen, and Marcus Arsvold. Hannah Meacock Ross. I don't know where I'd be without her. I hope I never find out. The biggest, biggest possible thank you, largest thank you ever to the fantastic Esther Perel for joining us on stage and in our hearts. Uh, we could not have gotten all of that done without Lindsay Rutowski and Jesse Baker. So right now, you have an assignment, which is to go out and find all the things that Esther has done. Her podcast, which, are you writing this down? A lot of you are driving or at the gym, so don't write it down. It's probably, there's a link in our description. Okay, don't write anything down. I need you to focus on the task at hand. Driving, ellipticling, cooking dinner for your ungrateful children. The podcast is called Where Should We Begin? And Esther sits down with real couples and they talk through the most interesting problems right in front of you. I cannot tell you how incredible it is, except that I just did. Season one is out right now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, anywhere you get your podcasts. Season two of Where Should We Begin? starts on October 24th, and that will be on Audible. Esther has a new book that just came out. I have it in my hot little hands. It's called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. You can get that anywhere you buy books. And actually, you need to get it everywhere you can buy books. State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. She's on Twitter. She's on Facebook. You can find me on the internet at Nora Borealis. And you can also find me in person November 7th at Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. Please come out, meet me. We're going to talk podcast. We're going to talk about my book. We're going to probably talk about my children because I am boring. November 7th, Parnassus Books in Nashville, Tennessee. If Ann Patchett isn't there, I will throw fit. If Ann Patchett's not there, it's fine, I guess. <laughs> Our theme music is composed by Joffrey Wilson. TTFA is a production of American Public Media. I call it APM. I hope it catches on. <laughs>